High school is a hard enough time in many of our lives when the notion of belonging can be painful. Then add to the mix a passion for two seemingly different pursuits, for example, athletics and acting. Jordan Donica took on this role while attending high school in Indiana. And much like every role he's had since coming to Broadway in 2016, he nailed it. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. Once you hear Jordan Donica open his mouth and sing, there's little doubt that he chose the right profession. Because of that talent and a single-mindedness about pursuing his passion of theater and music, there weren't really Before the Cheering Started years, more like weeks. Shortly after graduating from Otterbein University in Ohio, he was cast as Raoul in The Phantom of the Opera, the first African-American to be cast in that role on Broadway. Same for his role as Freddie Einsford Hill in My Fair Lady, and now Sir Lancelot in Camelot, for which he's nominated for a Tony Award. Not that long ago, he was growing up in Indianapolis, raised by what he calls a little village of women, a kid who loved both Fiddler on the Roof and the Indiana Pacers, a team I covered more than a few times during my sports days. So that's where we launched our conversation. So Jordan, I hope you can keep this secret of mine safe, and it'll just be between you and me that throughout the 90s when I was covering all those Knicks-Pacers playoff series, uh, I actually kind of liked the Pacers, thought they were a great team, loved to watch them, but Please don't tell any of my New York friends about this, if you would. Your secret is safe with me. If it makes them feel any better, the Pacers are just like the Knicks. We are built the same. Our operations are basically run the same. Except for we, we don't have the luxury of being in a, in a large market. But the Knicks are run like they're a small market team. No shade. <laughs> <laughs> you traveled around a lot as a kid. At what point did you get to Indiana and then stayed in Indiana? I got to Indiana around eight and a half, nine years old, like in the middle of a school year. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I went to third grade in Indiana, like middle of third grade to end of third grade. And then, uh, I was there until I was 17. You've mostly been on Broadway, but you've also done, you know, obviously you were in the road company of Hamilton. That notion of a transient life as an actor, is there any connection there, a comfort there, because you had something like that growing up? That's absolutely correct. Uh, it was one of the attractive things about this profession. I was raised by a single mom who worked in business, and so she, she and my aunt, who was also a single mom, they both taught me to like pursue jobs that kind of would let you see the world and um, being an actor and a singer and a performer has taken me to places that I never otherwise would have the instinct to go to you know I lived in southern Utah for six months I've lived in California for a year I spent the last three years in Vancouver British Columbia um, and my family has gotten to come and visit me in those places and I've gotten to share that with my niece and my nephew and They've gotten to go places because uh, that they wouldn't otherwise go to uh, because of my uh, my work and my travels. And so I'm just excited to see where where in the world um, work will take me next. British Columbia was because of the TV show. Yes, yes, that's where we filmed Charmed. 
of all the places in the world, I got to say, British Columbia, not too shabby. I had no idea. I stepped off the plane in 2019, and it was like I was breathing air for the first time. I was like, <laughs> can I, I can breathe better here? Like, it, it, what, what is that? It's, it's a special place for sure, for sure. Tell me a little bit more about the, the, the village of women, as you, as you call yeah. it. Yes. And again, do you see, are there lessons learned, spoken or unspoken, from that village of women that pertain to what you're doing today? Uh, everything, I would say. I was raised by my mom, and I have a sister that's nine and a half years older than me. Um, and then I have, uh, I have my aunt Kathy, who, uh, my mom was the oldest of three girls. And uh, so it's, my, it's Kelly Kathy Kim. And then my Grammy, I was raised by my mom. And then I would spend all my spring breaks up in Indiana with my um, aunt Kathy. And then I would spend about a month, I would say, um, in Bloomington, Indiana, which is where my family is from, uh, with my grandparents, my Grammy and my papa. My papa just passed away. Um, he was my mom's stepdad, but he was married to my grandma over 45 years. And then my grandpa, Lauren, my mom's biological father, he passed when I was 10. So I knew him and like, like that was the only male relationship really that I had within my family. I have uncles and things like that, but it's, I have a very matriarchal family. Everything kind of has always gone through my Grammy and still does. Um, my papa, as I said, just passed away this last November. So I helped set up her room and um, she picked out a new carpet and the color of her wall that she wanted and we painted it. She now lives with my mom in my old bedroom. The way that I was raised was just in a very singular way, I, I would say. I, I, I knew pretty early on that I, was, I didn't have a sim, the same type of household as other kids that I knew or went to school with. Some, yes. I have a very open family, so everything was always you know, on the table for discussion and debate. And they're very well-educated single women who were living in a world that wasn't, you know, always isn't always accepting of, of people like that. Um, raising a young mixed child in a world that's not always accepting of people like that. So I don't know if they, they just imbued me with a lot of strength through their own adversity and through the adversity that I faced and they constantly support me. As a young kid, were they able to deflect that from you or did you get some sense of that early on growing up? Uh, they were pretty great at deflecting what they could but you can't you know you can't be everywhere all the time and uh, I was I was in I was heavily involved in all sports and any after-school activity that you could imagine just to keep me out of trouble you, you get something sometimes but and I, I wouldn't often get it from kids until I started going to Catholic school actually that was in Indiana and uh, but you know people are going to be what they're going to be and ignorance is ignorance, no matter what it looks like. The Village of Women. Now, you currently and in your career have played some some pretty big roles with men with big personalities, shall we yeah, say? Yeah. Uh, Lancelot. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Without being too much armchair psychologist, is there any way that being raised by this group of women does that inform at all how you approach? these kind of larger-than-life male roles? Not necessarily, no. I, my approach is, uh, especially with, like, Thomas Jefferson, 
is very is always character driven, like text driven and history driven. The great the great uh, aspect about playing him is that he you could go and read his own words. You know, you don't have to read what people said about him. You can, and that's lovely, but you can go and read his own thoughts. And so when you have that luxury, you get to tap into someone else's thought process just from their sentence structure and, and things like that. And um, that is what, uh, at the end of the day, helped me find that character because I, I struggled. Other, like Otherwise, playing a character like Thomas Jefferson can be you know, very stock character. He, he can be very stereotypy. He can, he can just be a fop. But if it's rooted, if the fun is rooted in something, then uh, it makes it much more tangible to play. You've played some characters who speak French. Yeah. And, I, 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 and, I and seeing Camelot, yeah, seeing Camelot, seeing you speak French at Camelot, it, it's, it's very natural. So I'm curious did you speak French before these roles started happening, or is this just a happy coincidence? Uh, I think it's just a happy coincidence. Though Bart said one day in uh, in uh, one of the workshops a couple years ago of of Camelot, I was just like, "Man, I I keep playing these French dudes. Like, I wonder what the role is. Like, <laughs> I need to go to France just to see what's what's up." And he was just like, "Yeah, it makes sense to me." And in my head, I was just like, I don't know what that means. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he was like, yeah, no, you, you have a lot of French sensibilities. I will say my mom uh, was a French foreign exchange student when she was in high school. So she lived over in France for a time growing up. And when I was growing up, she always used to tell me goodnight in French. Uh, Bonne nuit, mon petit. And she would tell me some stories, like just not in French, but like just some French fables and things like that like the little prince and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, I don't know what it is, but uh, I appreciate it. And a lot of American artists have gone to France to find their art and their philosophy and stuff. So I, I view it as a compliment. Oh, there's a pretty rich history there. Yeah, yeah. Is it true, I heard the story about you seeing Fiddler at a, not just a young age, Yeah. But a, a very young age. Yeah, I was like three. And you having a memory of it? Yeah, I was like three years old. I remember because, again, being raised by a single mom and she couldn't find a babysitter. My sister wasn't available or around at the time. And um, so she uh, she was given two tickets to see Fiddler from her um, business partner. She works on insurance. And, um, yeah, she took me as her date. And we sat in a house right box seat and i remember because i got to like i could like sit on the edge and lean like this so i could so i could see and uh, i stayed awake the whole time and i half the time i was just thinking to myself this room of full of adults is watching these other adults play dress up like what's going on here like i do that every every morning that I don't have to go to school. Me and my friends do this. What's so like, what? What's happening? And I remember Fr <laughs> Frumacera and being just terrified of Frumacera. And uh, then I went home and the next morning I woke up, my mom had the uh, VHS two cassette tape of Fiddler on the Roof, which she had watched in the past. And she would always try to get me to like sit down with her and watch something. And I, I would and for like five minutes and I was like this is boring like whether it was Jesus Christ Superstar or Joseph but anything that had kids in it 
was very tangible for me. And I was like, oh, they're doing this. I could do that. And so the next morning I woke up and I got a broom out from the closet and I got all my props ready to go. And I started reenacting Fiddler on the Roof when I woke up. Instead of playing Power Rangers, I chose to play Fiddler on the Roof. And my mom got up and she was like, this is weird. And she started filming it. And as soon as I saw her filming it, I just ran away. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty much my MO. Like as long as, if no one's watching, that's, I'm always performing. But as, as soon as I know people are watching, I get a little shy. Well, your mom was filming it. I'm sure there was an equity thing involved. Oh also, my gosh. She didn't have, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You going to pay me for this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're on time and a half here, my friend. Um, Growing up, is there a lot of music in the house? And is there a sense of, oh, I'm doing this for fun? Or is there a moment when you start to think, actually, I, I'm pretty good at this, and maybe I'd like to do this down the road? So my mom would always listen to music uh, whenever she cleaned. You know, I think that's pretty standard for parents, especially growing up. On the weekends, you wake up, it's Saturday, it's Sunday. It's just that time to clean. It's that time to reflect on the weekend. And listen to music, so you might as well have fun doing it. My mom has a very eclectic taste. My whole family has eclectic taste in music that range the gamut from rock and roll, hip-hop, and R&B to jazz and, um, and musicals and classics. I thank my grandfather for that. My grandpa, Lauren, who's my mom's um, father, he, uh, he was a educator. He was an athletic director at Bloomington North High School down in Bloomington, Indiana. He also was the head of the... Um, social studies, social sciences department. So history and economics and things like that. He, he had eclectic tastes. My Grammy has some eclectic tastes. So that was always good and nice. And they're supporters of the arts. But to be quite honest, it was my own ego that uh, from a very young age would see like the Welch's grape juice kids singing and be like, I could do that. Like, why? How does, how does that little kid get to do that? How do I get to do that, mom? And she just thought it was like a joke because singing for me, to be honest, is um, I, I consider it like my first language. I am a pretty shy person, I would say, um, which is often what I get at a stage door after playing a role like Thomas Jefferson or even Lancelot. It's a lot of people being like, wow, like you're energetically not at all what I just saw on stage, which to me is great because that's I am an actor. And people forget in this TikTok day and age that actors are playing at pretend. Let me repeat that. Actors are playing at pretend. It is a job. It is a craft. That's, that's for everyone out there who's, who's forgotten that because of reality TV and, and social media. So what I think you're trying to say is when you walk down the street, you, you just won't naturally go into song, you won't just naturally start singing on the street if ever I would leave you. Hell no. I will start singing something else. Like it, like if, a, if the moment spurs and there's a song that's appropriate for the moment, that's like a pop song or something, like I'll just like right. jump into that. But that's just for fun or like I'll sneeze and sing. But like it's, it's, that's more of just like a personality type of thing. Again, because music is my first language and I've always found since I was a little kid, like I might not know what to say to you, but I might know a song that conveys what I'm feeling in the moment right. better. Um, and I'll just jokingly do that. But I generally just like to be unnoticed because I'm already six foot five. So like, come on. <laughs> you know, so many of us grew up and we had 
multiple loves like sports and theater. And, And I was in that world and had a rough time trying to negotiate that and explain it, mm. especially to the, the other athletes. Yeah, uh, how did you do that? You, you, from what I understand, you had that in did, school. Yeah. You had yeah. that in high school. Yeah. How did that uh, negotiation go for you during those years, which are already, the high school years are already difficult enough? Yeah, I think because I started doing theater so young and I got the fighting out of my system as a young kid. Because I used to, like in, in elementary school, and middle school, if people would make fun of me or something, I, I wasn't I wasn't afraid to touch hands, you know, like, let's go. Eventually, like, you learn that there are better ways that you can go about that. And the ways that I found by the time I got to high school was to I eventually convince people to join me. So I got a few of the guys on the football team to join show choir. I got a few of them to join the musical. I even got one of them to study theater as a minor for when he like went off to college. So it's like, you know, like if you can't beat them, you, you might as well get them, get them to join you. And that to me is like the greatest trick because it's also people don't understand what theater actually is in terms of the community aspect of it. For me growing up where uh, theaters was always the place for everybody who is a little different. Doesn't matter where you come from what kind of different and what sport you're into or you're not into what you do on your own, what art you're into, you know, none of that matters. Just you as a human being matter. And that is what I think people find when they explore the world of theater, not even at the professional level, because that's not always the case as terms like you as a, you matter as a human. That's that kind of can go out the door sometimes, but at the community level, when no one's getting paid for this, we're all just here because we love the act of participating in this storytelling, this form of, of storytelling. Um, you find this crazy radical acceptance of people. And um, that's what I found in my experience in high school uh, with my football team as well. I know it's from a couple of years ago, but the notion of you getting guys from the football team to try out for a show. Yeah. Uh, can you recall how that conversation, at least initially, the first time you tried it, how that went? And the responses that you got? It helped because I would sing at practice, but like to myself, I was a wide receiver. So I would often like be running out to my position, humming a song, or uh, I used to do this impression of Darius Rucker for uh, some of the guys on the team in the huddle whenever we were like waiting <laughs> just like, I'm Darius Rucker. Because full disclosure, I didn't know. I knew Hootie and the Blowfish and everything, but I never like saw what they looked like. And I remember the day I said this, and my mom just laughed at me. I was like, I didn't know Darius Rucker was black. And my mom <laughs> just laughed, laughed and laughed and laughed. And uh, I just came up with a joke after that that every everyone on my football team loved. And then eventually, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like the musical auditions would roll around, and I just like, come on, guys, like. It's fun. You know, like, it's a free credit. You, you can really just express yourself. You, all you have to do is exist. Um, and this, for Susical, that particular musical, uh, it was like, there, you, could do, you could be a circus actor. So, like, I remember this one dude, Kevin Harrington, shout out, what a great dude. Um, he auditioned our, our senior year. 
and he was a juggling clown in the musical. And he's like, I love this. He's like, I can't believe I never thought to do this before because this is a lot of fun. And I was just like, yeah, man, like, that's what it's about. That's just one example. I got a couple other guys to do it as well. A couple of them, did, like I said, were in show choir. And now that's a normal thing at my high school, you know, to be an athlete and to be involved in the arts. In fact, at, at a certain point, I think like 70% of the school was involved in some way in the arts in the last, that was in the last like five or six years. So like, that's really cool that that's, that, that that wasn't a thing and now it's it's been destigmatized you know high school musical helped with that but um yeah i found the best way to fight against prejudice and ignorance is to eventually get them to join your side but you can only really do that through love and expression and like i said radical acceptance of who you are and to me that's what the theater has always provided and so i try to be a, a conduit for that energy When you go off to college in Ohio, are you set like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an actor and a musician, or is there some question in your mind as to what the future is going to look like? Now, this is again, my ego and my, my, where I felt incredibly lucky my whole life is that I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was nine and a half years old. And so everything then that I did in my life, I was kind of like a mercenary about, I went into college knowing what I was trying, what I needed to get from, I mean, high school, excuse me, knowing what I needed to get from the experience in order to put myself in a position for college that I wanted to be in. Uh, I knew I wanted to be an actor. There was a moment there, my junior, senior year, where there was potential for me to extend my football career into college. And when I say a moment, it was literally a moment, almost as, as soon as the thought and the reality happened, it came crashing down because of injury in a basketball game, you know, I was never not going to do theater. I was never, in my mind, I was never not going to end up following the path of storytelling, whether or not that, wherever that takes me, because not every story needs to be told on a stage or on a screen. Some need songs, some need to be played live, some need art, some need poetry, and that's it. Like, And uh, I always knew I was following that path, no matter what, no matter where I ended up. And so for college, If a space didn't offer what I knew I wanted, uh, then I wasn't going to go there. That's why I wasn't really interested in a lot of the bigger, more well-known universities because they're great programs for producing a certain type of product. I'm not talking about the person, but like what they promote in terms of what their view of storytelling is and this business that just didn't align with me and i kind of found otterbein by accident and i didn't really want to go it was off the beaten path of where i was visiting with my aunt and i'm so glad that i did and that's been kind of a lesson of my whole life that often happens of someone being like hey you should check this out I'm like, eh, I don't know. And I check it out and I fall in love. I sat in that acting class and everything just kind of crystallized. And if I didn't go there, I would have probably gone somewhere and wrecked my body playing football and getting a BA in theater. Um, And I'm glad that I didn't do that. Along the way, both in high school and maybe early years in college, uh, how does that dream of yours play at home? Is there ever a conversation with your mom or this village of women in which they say, 
okay, great, but and you're very talented, but you might want to think about this as either a plan B or you know how hard it is to be an actor. Is that discussion had at home? I, uh, it, to a degree, but I don't, I did not believe in plan Bs. There's only like whatever plan there is. And so like, I didn't give myself that option. You know, like, like again, that's again, my, my ego has always been pretty strong uh, in terms of self-belief. One of the best things that you can do for me is doubt me because then uh, <laughs> great. And that's where I think that's also, I learned that from sports too. Like, you know, that competitive, like, but, and then theater and art, the competition is really only within oneself, I believe. And uh, so I was just like, okay, like, cool. People don't think I could do a certain something. Let's see. And that's part of what this whole thing is, right? Transcending the idea of what a human being, who a person is and who they're, versus what the art they're doing and the work they're portraying. My mom said, always says, she always was supportive. They, they've never, I've never had a family that dissuades you from anything, no matter what that thing is. Very supportive. And if you start something, you finish it. You don't have to go back and do it again if you don't like it, but you can't quit, you know, if you committed to something. And so I did rent my senior year. Well, I had just graduated high school and I was the youngest person in this company of young adults. Everyone was like between 18 and 25. I was the youngest. Most people were in the 22 to 23, 24 range. That was the first time that my mom was like pulling me aside afterwards. Is like, you made me forget that you are my son. Hmm. And I was like, that's like the best compliment that I could get. And I was just like, awesome. And she, and she says like often from that moment, she knew that like I would be all right, whatever I chose to do. Uh, but they've always, my family's always told me, Whatever I choose to do, they know I'm going to do it well because that's how they raise me. And that's who they are. That's kind of just what we, our mantra a little bit as a family, where we never meet strangers. And like, if we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it to the best of our abilities and, and commit to that thing. And um, they were always just nothing but supportive. I think if anything, she was more nervous about, about the people in this business that you can come across, about me living in New York, but then she came and she saw me and she saw me at work just through the auditions process. And she saw how people reacted to me and how I interacted with the world. And after that, she was like, yeah, I never worried about you after that. And I was about 18. Hmm. I think I know the story, but let's get it straight. The timetable from you graduating from college, coming to New York, landing your first gig in New York. Yeah, so my university has a senior year um, internship program, which is part of the reason why I chose to go there. So your second semester of senior year, you get to move to New York a little early. And um, most people intern at a casting office. I chose to intern with a woman named Jan Newcomb. And I helped her just, I was like her personal assistant secretary. And, um, she ran a program with Bob Niederlander, who's a theater owner. And uh, I learned a lot of the business side of things. And I did that very purposely because they don't teach you that in school and they need to. They teach you show, but they don't teach you business. And that's a problem at every university that teaches. And um, so I was actively seeking that for myself because I knew what I needed to learn. 
So I had that job and I started auditioning. I had started auditioning in New York first semester of my senior year in the fall. I had auditioned for Les Mis and that's how I was introduced to the Phantom world because there's some similar creative people between those two shows. Uh, so the first thing that I was actually called in for when I moved here in January, well, I moved here the day after Christmas of 2015. And then uh, in January, I had my first audition. It was for the tour of Phantom. It was to play a, an ensemble and to do an offstage, to be a cover for Ralph. And it was just like an all-day audition callback process, made it to the end. And they, they said to my face, we're not going to offer you this job because we think it'd be a waste of your time. But we'll let you know if the role of Ral ever becomes available. Which, for me at the time, as a 21-year-old kid, I was like, that's flattering. But also, I will sweep the stage. I don't <laughs> care if I'm an offstage cover. I don't care if I'm the third cover. I don't care if I... Uh, I don't care. I just want to be a part of the thing. Because uh, I also grew up doing crew stuff, so... That was like, it was both heartening, but also like, damn. So I just kept on the path of auditioning while doing my internship. And then, um, yeah, I booked, Long to make a long story short, I ended up getting called in for Broadway show. And they said they were looking for a temporary replacement for a leave of absence, I was told. And um, it was only going to be like a three-month contract and... Yeah, they wanted me to come back and audition for it. And in my head, I thought to myself, okay, I can't, it's mine to lose, one. Because after the first time, like, they were like, like they didn't give me the cover. So I got to at least do as good as, I can't do worse than I did last time. So anything more than that, like, it, if I if I don't get this, it's because I've it up. So, yeah, I just went in with that mentality and, yeah, it was like a three-week audition process for that, and I got the job before I graduated. I didn't start the job until after, but yeah, they offered it to me, and they hadn't found a Christine yet, so I was actually supposed to start like a month before I did, but uh, because they hadn't found who they wanted for Christine, and I'm, I'm glad that they found Allie because she was an amazing person to do the show with and to make my Broadway debut with, and so then I made my Broadway debut about a month after I graduated, and uh, but I had started rehearsals for it um, before that, and I had gotten the job before that. And yeah, it's just been a whirlwind since. That's a good way of putting it, a whirlwind. Uh, we, of course, anyone who pays attention to theater knows the stories of struggle and auditions and all of that. As you are getting this gig uh, pretty soon, right after college, is there some notion of, wow, uh, I just got here? basically, and, and it's already happening, or are you too busy to kind of step back and, and, and take a look at what's going on? I was just so excited. It's going to sound egotistical if I say it made sense to me. Uh, but like I said, I was very conscious and almost like mercenary-like in my approach to how I got to New York in the first place. And like I had created a stack of I'd created enough income for myself moving here that like, I didn't, I, I was like, okay, I can live here for three months without making an income. Cause that's what I've saved. I have an internship, which is a job, but it do doesn't pay me anything. 
So my real job is to audition. So like people think, yes, like the success is, is continuing to audition, I think, because uh, I still audition and don't get cast all the time. And that was the case then too. Like I, I got cast in Phantom and I got cast in a couple other regional um, shows, which is great. But I also didn't get a lot too. I was also auditioning more than most people that I knew at the time. So, and that's not to say anything one, one way or the other, but it was just like, you know, when you go to six auditions in a day, you hope something sticks when you go and you do that three times a week. And then all of a sudden, you know, the day I had my final Phantom callback, I had four callbacks for shows. So you, that, that's the job. I remember Lance Roberts telling me that like the real job in this business is just auditioning. Having a job is vacation. Know, getting the getting the job is the vacation but when you have the job then it becomes about what do I do to to do the best I can at this job so that I can get the next job so that I can get the next job so that I can get the next job and that's what I'm very conscious of and I like to take the approach of allowing my work and my person to just speak for itself how important are the firsts to you first african-american to play Freddie my fair lady in New York uh, first to play Raul, are these important to you or it's all all part of the work? I think both are true. It's important to me. It's important to like the little kid in me. And it's an important reminder of why I do what I do because other people gave that gift to me too. And so for me to be given the gift of agency to others, hopefully, well, I know it's true because people, kids have said it to me, you know, to see that it's possible for them to reach these places and do these things that maybe they they didn't believe that they could. So that is important. And for me, through playing these roles, what's been important has been a total, an expansion of education, of history, which is something that I try to give to people if they're actually interested. Most people aren't. I'm, I'm a believer in like color conscious casting and not color blind casting. And so whenever I do play a role, Raoul in particular, and I, I spoke with the people at Phantom about this, you know, every actor has their process. Not every director is interested in talking about what that process is. But the first time I played the character, you know, I, I know I'm always going to come up against ignorant people, whether that's the conservative person from the South or the liberal person here in New York who thinks they're the perfect ray of bastion of sunshine and not racist. Newsflash, we all are racist. And who are doing it in their mind for a good reason. Like, oh, like, isn't this nice? And I'm like, well, you know what's actually interesting is that black people have been in France for a long time. And uh, Alexander Dumas is uh, a quarter, uh, it's a quarter African. And he's the French writer who wrote, um, the Three Musketeers and uh, was it the Three Musketeers? Man in the Iron Mask and uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. His dad to this day is still the highest ranking general of African descent. Uh, I believe in the French Navy. I think it's the French Navy. It might be the French Army. Don't quote me there. It's one of those two things. Learning that was amazing because then I was like, oh, I don't have to consider what ignorant people say about me playing Raoul and that it would never be a thing because guess what it was? Like, look at that. 
and you don't learn that in school, you know? They don't tell you these things. But I do think it's ironic that Alexander Dumas wrote one of the most famous books, and it's about a man being wrongfully imprisoned. And it's essentially written by a person who is a black man in the 1800s. Like, that's fascinating to me. And so it's stuff like that, um, doing the Hamiltons and learning about what Thomas Jefferson actually thought about slavery from his own words, learning about the guilt that all of our founding fathers actually lived with, knowing that they had done it wrong from jump, not believing that something like America was actually sustainable because of how they set it up. Fascinating, especially when you look at like where we're at right now. So that's what I get from playing all these roles. It's just an education. Well, having just seen Camelot uh, and seeing we all, people love the theater, love those moments, those intangibles when something's happening. And to quote another pretty good show, we're all in the room where it happens. Uh, to hear you sing, If Ever I Would Leave You, is that moment. Thanks, bud. You might call it ego. I call it confidence. And I think it's an admirable quality. Your story along the way is a compelling one. And a shout out to all of those village of women who put you, like a great coach, put you in a position to succeed. There's a great, do you know who Gil Scott Heron is? Of course. He has a great poem called Guided. And uh, he, the lyric, I don't know if you know this poem. It's, uh, it's an amazing work. But the lyric often always reminds me of my family. The poem is, is called Broken Home. And uh, the last line of it is, my life has been guided by women, but because of them, I am a man. God bless you, mama, and thank you. And that, like, I resonate very deeply, very deeply. My life has been guided by women, and because of them, I am a man. Jordan, thank you for all this time. Good luck at the Tony Awards. Thanks, bud. And down the road, I'll see you at the Pacers uh, NBA Championship Celebration Parade. Let's go, okay? let's go. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, bud. Peace. Jordan Donica. He's currently starring in the Broadway production of Camelot in the role of Sir Lancelot, for which he's earned a Tony nomination. Before the cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.